When you have suffering and hardships and trials and pain and troubles, we're going to have them. The point is the solution for all that is Him. It's don't run away from God and try and fix it. Run to your Heavenly Father. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Hello, students, if you would open to Job chapter 23, Job 23. You know, Job is a man uh, most of us admire from a distance. Don't get too close to Job, you know? I mean, the lightning might strike close to you. No one wants to experience the suffering Job experienced, but most of us, when we read the last chapter, we go, revelation of God directly? Of course. And even more, the double blessings that he got after all his trials, we like that. You know, we humans, we like the prize, P-R-I-Z-E, but we generally don't want to pay the price, P-R-I-C-E, to obtain the prize. Paul illustrated that in uh, Philippians 3.10, which is uh, one of my favorite passages. He said, that I may know him. He's talking about knowing Christ. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And we got the prize and we go, whoa. Know Jesus personally. God, you can have a personal relationship with God. Pretty cool. Experience the power of his resurrection, of course. However, the price tag for that is pretty expensive. Share the fellowship of his sufferings, and eh, not so much. Being conformed to his death, I think I want a rain check, right? Here's the reality. You can't experience the resurrection from the dead until you first die right? The seed can't sprout and bear fruit as a plant unless you put it in the ground and it first dies, right? The Olympics are coming up. If you want to qualify for the Olympic Games, the reality is you're going to have to die to virtually everything else in your life except that one thing. Amen? If you saw the training regimen of Olympic athletes you get tired watching them. You get tired reading about it, right? I remember an Olympic interview, I guess an interview with the championship golfer Greg Norman from Australia. Someone asked him years ago why he was in the golf course parking lot at 5.30 in the morning stretching out in the dark on the car's bumper. And Greg replied, because daylight is for hitting golf balls. As long as it was daylight, Greg was hitting golf balls, and that's all he did. See, achieving what God has planned for our life requires not less than everything. The price is all of you, and the prize is eternal life with God forever in heaven. Hebrews 12.10 illustrates this. It says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Remember what mom and dad had to discipline you when you were a kid? Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So the end result of discipline, spiritual training, is peace and righteousness. Think about physical exercise. When you exercise, the effort is strenuous, but the effects of being physically in shape are sweet. Someone once said, I love this quote, I've never really practiced it, but I really love it. It says, overeating never feels as good as feeling fit. Overeating never feels as good as feeling fit, except for chocolate, right? Different ballgame, right? It's the same is true of our spiritual lives. God has a spiritual training regimen, a spiritual training program that's designed to change us in the image of his son, to make us like Jesus. And God's spiritual boot camp is sweaty, and it's strenuous, and it requires dying to ourself and our selfish desires and living by the power of God according to the plan of God for the glory of God. And God's training program by necessity involves the
the book of Job. Hardship, affliction, sufferings, trials, and troubles. And most of us really want to skip all of that. We like comfort and peace and health and wealth and safety and security, and yet we want to be like Jesus in our character and our conduct. And God says, you can't have the prize without the price. So remember, we're studying the life of Job. We've been here for about a month and a half, and Job, recall, was a good and godly man who God allowed Satan to attack. And in short order, recall that Satan took away God's, or Job's health, his wealth, his family, and his friends. First two chapters. He's now been in severe pain for months with no end in sight. Even worse, he has absolutely no clue why he's suffering. He has no idea. The bulk of this book is a series of three dialogues, arguments, disputes between Job and his three friends. And they come to comfort him, but unfortunately they wind up attacking him. Matter of fact, when they use the word Job's comforters, that's kind of a, you don't need friends like that. If you have friends like Job's, you don't need enemies, they'll do the job for you. So they come to comfort him, but they have a governing assumption that ruins everything. Their assumption that governs their arguments with Job is that God only and always blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked in this life. God only and always punishes the wicked and blesses the righteous in this life. The bedrock assumption they never question is that a just God would never allow an innocent person to suffer. Therefore, if you are suffering, you are by definition sinning. That's their assumption. So Job is suffering, and they come in and go, you have got to be a world-class bad person to justify all this sin. And they have no evidence that he sinned, none whatsoever, but they relentlessly attack him for most of the book, trying to prove that he's a great sinner, and he deserves this suffering. You can see what kind of friends they were. Even worse, they misrepresent God. They claim to know that God is punishing Job for his sins, but God never said that. As a matter of fact, recall in chapter 1, God says Job is blameless, innocent, upright, fears God, turns away from evil. So they lied about Job, and they've also lied about God. Now, what is true is that the sovereign God of the universe, creator God, is the ultimate cause of everything, including human suffering. Today, we want to explore why God allows suffering, especially the suffering of his children. And the overarching truth is suffering exists because we live on a broken planet. This place is broken. And if you think this place is not broken, I invite you to step outside the front door. And Matthew, you don't need to do that. Just click the on button and you'll see lots of things that are not working here. While we're here on earth in this life, we're probably never going to know anywhere near a fraction of the reasons why suffering occurs. Some of them, quite frankly, are holy mysteries. However, God always tells us what we need to know in order to accomplish his purposes in and through us. We have everything we need to know how to live life on this planet. Job is very frustrated because he doesn't understand why God is doing what he's doing. As a matter of fact, Job is so convinced he's innocent, he wants to take God to court. Multiple chapters or legal languages. I'm going to take God to court. I'm going to put God on trial. And I'm going to force God to answer my charge. He's an unjust God. It's not right for a just God to allow an innocent guy like me to suffer. And many people do that. Our whole culture says, well, if I were God, I would do blah, 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 fill in the blanks. If I only had the power, I would change X and Y and Z. Well, for those of you that heard Andrew this morning, you understand that that's a good thing we don't have that kind of power because the universe is just a tad more complex than we can comprehend. And the moving parts, God has an eternal plan to accomplish his purposes in his time. Now, Job wants to take God to court, but he's having trouble finding him. He can't locate God. And, of course, if the judge is not in the courtroom, there's no trial. So let's go to Job 23, verse 8. Job is talking, and he says, Behold, I go forward, but God is not there. And I go backward, but I cannot perceive him. When God acts on the left, I can't behold him. When God turns to the right, I can't see him. But, verse 10, very precious verse, God knows the way I take, 
And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Verse 13. But he is unique, and who can turn him? And whatever his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. Here's the guiding principle for that section. The foundation of our faith is God's word, which guides us and nourishes us. The foundation of our faith is God's word, which you happen to have in your lap, which guides us and nourishes us. So Job says, I go forward and I can't find him. Now, in the ancient world, forward always meant east. You're facing east. That's east, right? No? I see. Yeah, I'd be in trouble. So facing east is the direction of the sunrise. So backwards would be west, left is north, and right is south. The picture is, Job says, no matter which way I turn, I can't find God. I don't know where he is. I can't perceive what he's doing. I can't see or hear him. I have no sense of his presence. I feel all alone in the world. What Job understands, though, is that's not what's really important. It's not important that the creature know what the creator's doing because he's God and we're not. Job didn't know where God was, but the important thing is God knew exactly where Job was and when and why, and Job knew that God knew because he said, he, God, knows the way that I take. See, it's comforting for you and I to know that no matter how confused we are, God is never confused. It doesn't matter that we think we're lost, God always knows where we are. None of us are lost from God's perspective. We may be lost from our perspective. See, God knows our ways, our paths, our decisions, because he designed the path of our lives. Psalm 139 says that God intimately knows each one of us by name, by DNA. He created each of us in our mother's womb uniquely according to his specifications, which means every one of you has a unique genetic blueprint. Every one of you has a completely and totally unique DNA, and there's no one like you on planet Earth. There's no one like you in the universe. And I can hear some of you say, well, that's a good thing. But at any rate, you're probably saying that about your neighbor. Yeah, I know. Psalm 139 says he knows our name. He knows our words before we say them. So he knows the stupid that's going to fall out of my mouth sometime in the next seven days. And he knows our thoughts before we think them, which is a little terrifying and comforting because nothing surprises God. In order to be surprised, you have got not to know. Well, God knows, so God is never surprised at any of our behavior. And he's never disappointed either because he already knows what we're going to do. He has numbered our days before we were born. God knows the exact date of your arrival on this planet, and he knows the precise nanosecond of your departure. It's already written down in the book. Psalm 139 tells us that. Now, you don't know that, which is a good thing. I don't know that, which is a good thing. But it's very comforting that our Father does know that. It says he knows when a sparrow dies and how many hairs are on each of our heads and how many subatomic particles are in our systems. Ephesians 1 says that God, before he created the universe or anything in it, he chose each one of you by name to be part of his spiritual family. Before he created anything, you are precious in his sight. God has a perfect plan, and he has a precise plan for each one of his children's lives. And here's the hard part. That plan always involves struggle and hardship and suffering and affliction, along with all the things that we call wonderful and pleasant and good. Job says, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And the word tried here has the, has the idea of, of, of proven. This is not the suffering of refining, we'll get to that in a second, but it's a demonstration of Job's innocence. You know, when gold is completely pure, heat will not reveal any more impurities. It's already pure. Pure gold, it's been said, there's no proverb, fears no fire, because it only makes the gold shine brighter. Job is saying, God is trying me in the furnace of affliction, and he will not find any secret sin in my life, contrary to what my friends are saying. My friends are saying, you are sinning and you're lying about it. Job says, no, I'm not. I'm innocent and God's going to find that. Job says, I have kept God's way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. So God's word is Job's guide. Have you ever noticed that in this life it is terribly easy 
to become distracted from opening this thing called the Bible and actually finding out what God says, that God has a message for you and I every single day. The Holy Spirit is waiting for you to open this book because he has something to say to you. And it's something you're going to need for today. He wants to guide us far more than we want to be guided because we're fairly convinced we don't need any help. Why would I need God's help? Why would I need to read what the Bible says? I'm plenty smart enough to figure this out. Really? See, the world is filled with bright, shiny things that promise much and deliver little. And Job says, I've stayed on God's narrow path. I haven't been distracted. I followed God faithfully because God's word guides my thinking and my decision-making. And he says, I've treasured God's word more than my necessary food. So we said God's word is our guide, but God's word is also our nourishment. Job says, I'd rather feast on God's word than a good ribeye, than physical food. So what nourished his soul and gave him spiritual strength was eating God's word on a daily basis. Jesus said to Satan, he quoted Moses, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Just like your physical body needs physical food, right? And I love really good sourdough bread, just saying. Your soul needs God's word as its food. I've often wondered what would happen if people's souls looked like their bodies. In other words, if we could see your soul. How many people would be anorexic? I mean, they may be carrying some physical pounds, but is there excess spiritual muscle, or are they so starved to death spiritually that they're anorexic and they have no spiritual strength and no spiritual power at all? Because they don't feed on God's Word. See, the God who created the heavens and earth gave us the operator's manual, which is cool. You ever own a car? How many of you own a car? How many of you have an operator's manual? How many of you have ever looked at the darn thing? We have someone who does. I'm glad you're a nurse. I'm going to see you because she'll read the operator's manual, right? Here's how you treat that, right? So we have an operator's manual, the operator's manual for how to live on planet Earth. Job says, God does whatever God chooses, and he's going to perform what he's appointed for me because he has a plan. See, we live the Christian life by faith, not by sight. We live by promises, not by explanations. William Cowper wrote a, a hymn tune. It says, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his feet upon the seas and rides upon the storm. How many of you have ever thought that God was operating in ways you didn't quite understand? Didn't quite understand like thoroughly did not understand. Well, God operates in mysterious ways. He's told us what we need to do in, his, in the Bible, but he hasn't told us everything. That's why we walk by faith. The important thing to remember is nothing is accidental in God's kingdom. Everything has purpose, even suffering. Many of God's purposes are a mystery, and the Bible, a mystery, is something that has not yet been revealed. And God has many purposes in suffering, some of which we know today, some of which we'll know in heaven, and some we're never going to know. So today I want to spend the bulk of our time reviewing some of the things that God says about why people suffer, specifically why God's children who are part of his family, saved by Jesus Christ, redeemed, why they suffer. Number one, suffering refines and purifies our faith. 1 Peter 1.6 says, In this, he's talking about your heavenly inheritance, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's the principle. Trials are painful, but temporary and necessary in order to purify our faith. Most of what I'm going to tell you today, you will know is true, and you're not going to want to hear I didn't want to hear it when I'm studying it. It's like, oh, but it's true. And it's an expression of God's love for us. And I'll show you that to you. So trials are painful, but temporary and necessary in order to purify our faith. So he uses this phrase, 
testing by fire, testing by fire. He's talking about a process of refining precious metals by heating them to the melting point, actually heating them beyond the melting point. When precious metal gets melted, it gets hot enough to liquefy, the impurities in that metal called dross rise to the surface. They float. And then you skim off the impurities and separate it from the pure gold. So the whole point of applying intense heat to a precious metal is to purify it. So you want the impurities to come to the surface, separate those off skim, and what's left is pure gold or pure metal, what you're trying to do. So intense heat reveals everything that's there. I didn't even like that that came out of my mouth, but it's true. It surfaces what's in our mouth so that it can be separated out. Warren Wiersbe once said, when God puts his own people into the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. He knows how long and how much exactly. See, refining is really hard work. It's time-consuming. It's sweaty. It's really hot. It's repetitive. You have to build a very hot fire to smelt metals like gold or silver. Silver melts at 1,763 degrees Fahrenheit. You could do an egg at that temp, right? Gold melts at 1,948 degrees Fahrenheit. Platinum takes 3,215 degrees. Yeah, your nonstick pans, smoke. See, the reality is, it's so much work to purify that if the metal's not really valuable, you don't bother with it. So you can do lead at 625 degrees, plus or minus. It melts pretty easy. So a lot of people melt lead, cast bullets, all kinds of things. Platinum, to get to 3,200 degrees, that's a whole lot tougher, a whole lot work. So the spiritual parallels between refining metals and God refining our lives are, are many. God goes to a lot of work to purify each of his children. And you know why? Because you are precious to him. That's why he does that. Jesus died for us, and the Father loves us enough to make us like Jesus. And reality is our lives contain many, many impurities, most of which we are unaware of. But God is aware of them. So when God applies the heat of affliction, the heat of suffering, the heat of hardship, he's revealing to us the state of our souls. Often it's only when we're suffering that we see what we're really made, really made out of. Someone once said, people are like tea bags. You only find out how strong they are when you put them in hot water. <laughs> hot water brings out whatever is inside the tea bag. In the same way, troubles and trials bring out what's actually inside us, which might be very different than what we present to other people about what's inside us. Pastor Rogers often said that when you're bumped by life, whatever spills out of you is what's inside you. I have been embarrassed more times than I can think when I get bumped by life and what falls out of my mouth is stuck on stupid. And I didn't think that was in me. Well, guess what? It was, because if it comes out of you, it must have been in you, right? I remember burping our sweet little innocent children, and let me tell you, what was inside them spilled out all over my back. <laughs> and it wasn't the sweet smell of roses either, and you know what I'm talking about. See, what we are is we're kind of like a chunk of rock ore, mostly rock, a little gold, right? Now, a solid substance like rock is pretty hard. And a solid substance like rock usually resists change. That's us. So when you want to get the gold out of rock, you first crush the rock, which can be pretty painful, especially if you're a rock that has feelings, right? <laughs> then you apply chemicals to leach out the gold, and then you apply heat. And when you heat a metal until it melts enough to pour, it changes from a solid that resists change to a liquid that is very amenable to change. It turns into a fluid. It's molten and movable and mixable and changeable. And when God heats our lives up through trials, he is upsetting our stability. He is changing our comfort zones. He destroys our self-assurance, our self-reliance. He reduces our resistance to change and he melts off those sharp edges that hurt other people. So when God's heat becomes high enough, we melt. 
our sharp edges soften, we become flexible enough for God to pour us into any container he chooses. And we say, did you have to go there, Brad? I really wanted to pass on all that. I understand. We like comfort. We are resistant to change. God loves you and I way too much to leave us with the impurities we currently have in our lives. He wants to make us like Jesus. And one of the ways he does it to everybody on planet Earth, Christian or non-Christian, he lets them try parenting. You who think you're large and in charge. And if you don't have a parent, you can try a pet, a puppy, a wonderful puppy who howls for three nights in a row and won't go to sleep. And you are large and in charge. Yes, God has ways to soften us and move us and mold us and shape us because he loves us. So that's the number one reason he lets us suffer. Number two, suffering matures us, James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, mature, and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Here's the principle. Various trials give your faith an exhaustive workout. When you endure, you mature. Various trials give your faith an exhaustive workout. When you endure, you mature. So trials and troubles and problems and pain, they stress test our faith. They assault our desire for comfort and ease. How many of you have ever said, and I'm guilty number one on this list, you know, if I just get through these problems... If I could just get through the next two weeks, then it'll be smooth sailing. Yeah, you lied to yourself like that too? Let me tell you, life is white water. Sometimes you get a little break, but it's mostly white water. There is always going to be something. And I want you to notice that the word for trials here is plural. I've never met a trouble or a trial that was a hermit. Troubles or trials usually come as a crowd, and they gang up on you, right? And there's various kinds of troubles he's talking about. You know, family troubles, and financial troubles, and physical problems, and emotional troubles, and spiritual troubles, and health problems, etc., etc. And he says, here's how you manage that. He says, I want you to consider it all joy when you run into these troubles. He doesn't say if you run into them. He says when you run into them. You're going to. It's inevitable. But consider means to calculate. It means to thoughtfully calculate a conclusion based on all the evidence. It's an accounting term. Austin would know this, and Marty. You, you, you get a balance sheet, and you total up the assets, and you subtract the liabilities, and you come up with a net worth number. Assets minus liabilities is net worth. So he says, when you total up the cost-benefit equation for troubles and trials, the benefits far outweigh the costs. And he uses the word endurance. Endurance. Our faith is like a marathon. Have you ever noticed that this thing called the Christian life is not a sprint? It's a marathon. Here's the problem with marathons. We get tired. You look tired. You probably are tired. And when I get out of bed in the morning, I do not jump up and go, isn't it a great day? It takes about... 40 minutes of exercise and two cups of coffee and a shower, and that's as good as it's going to be for the day right there. Right? But you endure. A marathon, you keep enduring. You know, mile 20, 21, 22. So when you keep running in the middle of trials, you learn endurance, and it's exhausting because there are no shortcuts to maturity. I hate that. Maturity is not a microwave. Maturity's deep pit, barbecue, 24 hours. You can cram for a school exam. You can't cram for spiritual maturity. You have to go the distance. James says, if you consider it all joy, he says, 
Look at the end result that these trials are going to do for your life. It's going to make you more like Jesus. It's going to shape your character and your conduct. Your children and grandchildren will like you much better after you've suffered because you will be a much more tender, thoughtful, wise grandparent and parent. Number three, suffering is proof we belong to Christ. Hebrews 12.5. This is God talking to you and I. He says, my son, my daughter, do not lightly regard the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son or daughter whom he receives. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons or daughters. So here's the principle. When God disciplines you, it's proof that you are a beloved child of God. When God disciplines you, it's proof that you are a beloved child of God. Our Heavenly Father says to us, don't neglect my discipline. Don't treat it lightly. Don't blow it off. Because discipline demonstrates family membership. When our Heavenly Father disciplines us, it proves we actually belong to His family. Earthly parents don't discipline kids across town. Who do earthly parents discipline? Their own children is who they should, and you and I know that children that do not have discipline at home, you don't want your kids to hang around, right? Say yes, you know that's true. So the parent that doesn't love their children enough to discipline them produces really out-of-control children. Diligent parents do not neglect discipline. Diligent parents discipline their children because they love them. As a matter of fact, discipline is proof of love. They want their children to grow up in mature, godly adults, and that requires sin to be punished. The word chasten, the word punishment here, it means correction through pain in order to reclaim an offender. My father and mother had no problem disciplining me. And when they said, this hurts me more than it hurts you, I said, liar, liar, pants on fire. I said it under my breath because it would have gotten a few more. I mean, no problem at all. But having children, I will tell you that discipline was very difficult. I didn't like it. I still don't like it. I just wish they'd behave without it. It doesn't quite work that way. See, if sin is not punished, what do you get? More of it. If you don't get discipline in the home, then they get discipline at school. If they don't get discipline at school, they get discipline in the penal system. Ernie can tell you all about it, right? They're going to get disciplined one way or the other. Better have it when it's young than for them to learn discipline at 23 after a couple of murders or something. So if sin is not punished, more, more sin results. We need to teach our children and grandchildren that sin creates long-term pain. Don't do it. And following God leads to long-term joy. And God does exactly the same thing with us. That's one of the reasons why he allows us to suffer, is to do that. Number four, suffering combats self-reliance. 2 Corinthians 1.8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction when we came to Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Here's the principle. God allows us to suffer in order to teach us to rely on Him and not ourselves. God allows us to suffer in order to teach us to rely on Him and not ourselves. Have you ever been burdened with something you didn't think you could carry? And it never seems to go away. And it just stays there. And you go, you know, God, you said you won't give me anything I can't take. I can't take any more. I can't take any more pain. I can't take any more heartache. I can't take any more blah, blah, blah. And tomorrow morning you wake up and it's still there, whatever it is. Sometimes we think it's so bad, we think we're going to die. And sometimes we even want to die. And we wake up and we're disappointed because we're still here. And the pain is still here. And Paul has had that burden. He said we were suffering beyond what we could manage. His burden of suffering probably referred to the fact that he experienced a mob in Ephesus that wanted to kill him. Demetrius and his fellow silversmiths were making a very nice living creating these little idols of Diana, the goddess. 
fertility goddess of Ephesus. And they made a lot of money selling these goddesses. Well, Paul, wherever Paul preached, people turned away from idols and turned to the living God. And so the demand for silver idols was drying up. Demetrius was having a little trouble with his balance sheet these days. So he stirred up a mob who rioted, took over the amphitheater. And, and furthermore, in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, Paul lists some of his sufferings. Lest you think that you are unique in what you are suffering, Paul was whipped five times by the Jews, 39 stripes with cat of nine tails. He was beaten three times with rods. Once he was stoned with rocks in Lystra, left for dead. He was shipwrecked three times, spent 24 hours in the deep hanging onto wood. He endured hunger, sleep, sleeplessness, thirst, and the threat of robbery and violence as he traveled from church to church during that culture. Didn't have the Bakersfield Police Department available to him, you know. So God used the suffering to draw us to himself and to teach us to stop trusting in our own brilliance. We usually trust God as a last resort. We usually pray, really pray, when we don't think there's any other choice. We say, God, it's, it's just you and me, like Bill Cosby said. It's just you and me, right? That's where we should start, not where we should end. Prayer is the first thing we do, not the last thing we do. So when you get a medical diagnosis, it's not that God won't use physicians to provide treatment for you, but you pray first because your faith is in him, not the physician. Number five, suffering helps us to minister to others. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse 5. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Verse 6. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Here's the principle. Our sufferings are not always about us. Sorry. God comforts us so we can comfort others. Our afflictions, our sufferings, our hardships, our pain, our trials are not always about us. God often comforts us so we can comfort others. Now, the word comfort means to come alongside. It means to come to one's aid. It means to give relief. It means to give help, to provide assistance, to console, to cheer up. It literally means to encourage, to give courage to someone who needs it. Sometimes God allows us to suffer so that we can, obviously, we can experience his comfort. And he says, I'm the God of all comfort. And he promises that he's there with us. And many of you understand that. At the end of the day, God is the one who comforts you and provides you with that peace in the middle of the storm because he said, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So he comes alongside. He gives us his comfort, his consolation, his encouragement. And many times that comes through his promises. That's why it's so important we read and understand what he said. He does this because he loves us and because he wants to comfort others. There's an old song by Andre Crouch probably 40 years ago. It's called Through It All. And he says, I thank God for the storms he brought me through. For if I never had a problem, I wouldn't know God could solve them. I wouldn't know what faith in God could do. So right now, I know that many of us in this room are in storms, and we're in struggles, and we're in hardships, and there are things we can't fix because they're not under our control. Do we thank God for that problem? Do we thank him for that storm? Or do we just say, God, take it away, take it away, take it away, take it away. Yesterday, please turn your hearing aid on, come back from vacation, take it away, take it away. <laughs> if life never had any storms, if the disciples had not been on the boat in the middle of a storm, they never would have heard Jesus say, peace, be still, shh, and the storm disappeared. We wouldn't experience his power over storms if we didn't have them. When does food taste the best? Yeah, when you're hungry. 
When does cold water taste the best? When you're thirsty. If life had no problems, most of us wouldn't appreciate the lack of them. You know when I appreciate hot water the best? When the hot water heater is broken. <laughs> Last couple nights ago, we're upstairs, which is not a good place to be in the summertime, and I turned down the AC, and nothing seemed to happen. And I said, this is Thursday night. This is definitely not good. Friday night. I guess it was Friday night. And I thought, you're calling a, you know, AC specialist on the 4th of July weekend. I'll see him in a week. Maybe. Maybe a week and a half. Well, fortunately, I had gotten behind the heat curve because upstairs was 80 degrees by the time I hit it on. So it took, a, you know, 30 minutes to bring, begin to bring the heat down. But I was really appreciating the lack of air conditioning when I didn't have it. See, if we didn't have any problems, you know the reality is if life had no problems, most of us wouldn't pray very often. We wouldn't. Most of our, our relationships with Jesus wouldn't be very deep. We wouldn't think we needed him because life is working fine without him. And you know lots of people in the world are going, who, I mean, Jesus is fine, God's fine, but who needs him? My life is fine. Yeah, well, you got a date with the deathbed or maybe the accident, or maybe the cancer, or maybe whatever it is. Self-sufficiency doesn't work real well in the face of death. Let's get real, and let's deal with reality, not what you think is. And that's another reason God allows us to suffer. Number six, suffering swats down pride. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from my, me exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Here's the principle. Sometimes God allows pain to persist because it's better to have pain with God's power than pride without God's power. Sometimes God allows pain to persist because it's better to have pain with God's power rather than pride without God's power. Now, the context is, Paul had a vision of the third heaven. Probably when he was being stoned at Lystra, we're not exactly sure, but 14 years prior to him writing this, he said, I had a vision of heaven and a vision of God, and to prevent Paul from being proud about that and being exalted about it and, 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 and those kinds of things, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. God gave him a messenger of Satan. We have no idea what it really was, but Paul says, it buffeted me. It's beating me up. And it's persistent. And it's painful. And it won't go away. And some of us can identify with that. And three times he said, God, please take this away. Take this away. Take this away. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And that's an answer that most of us don't want to hear. In other words... You don't need this pain removed. You just need me. As a matter of fact, Paul, the way you will experience my power in and through you is for you not to have this pain removed. As a result of this pain, Paul would be weak and dependent upon God, and he would not depend upon himself. And as a result of Paul's weakness, the power of God would flow through Paul and empower him to fulfill God's plans. So Paul says, I'd rather have my pain and God's power rather than no pain and my power. And most people look at that equation and say, that sounds good in theory. But when I'm in the middle of pain, forget about it. I'll get my relief from a bottle whatever. I'm not saying, I'm not a fan of pain, okay? I'm not saying that pain and suffering in itself is virtuous. That's not the point. 
It's what God chooses for us is what's important because he's our father and he knows what we need. Most people don't want to be dependent on God's power. Most people want to run their own life. Even if they're going to fly the jet into the ground, they want to be at the tiller. God's people can never accomplish God's plans in their own strength. God's power is required. There's an old Blackwood Brothers gospel song that says, Learning to lean, learning to lean. I'm learning to lean on Jesus. Finding more power than I've ever dreamed, I'm learning to lean on Jesus. And I said, how do you learn to lean on Jesus? Well, generally by falling down on your own because you're dependent on your own wisdom and strength. Proverbs 3, 5 says, do not lean on what? Your own understanding. Don't depend on yourself. Put your full weight on God. In March 25th of 1982, I was snow skiing up in Lake Tahoe, and I shattered my left ankle. Orthopedist put in six screws. There's something behind me, I know. <laughs> Dare I look? Yeah, that's what it felt like. You ever skied in corn snow? Corn snow is like walnut-sized marbles. That's what it was at the ski ranch up at Tahoe. And I went off a jump and came down, and sure enough. So they put in six screws, metal plate. I broke it in the ball, bone grafts. They said, no weight on the ankle, PT immediately, crutches for four months. So for four months, I couldn't put any weight. I walked around like this with crutches. All the weight was on the crutches. Yes, I ran with the crutches. I did all sorts of crazy things in my 20s. But my ankle could not support my weight. He says, I'm not going to cast it. No weight. If you put any weight on this, I will break your other foot because you'll ruin all the work I did, right? So when we lean on Jesus, we put our full weight on him and not our own support systems. I run to the people all the time who say, I don't need any crutches. They have one. It's themselves. They're depending on, they're putting their full weight on their own brilliance and their own wisdom. They're depending on themselves. I don't need Jesus. I don't need God. I got this thing figured out. My question is, why would you depend on your own three-pound brain when you have the infinite wisdom of Almighty God available to you? And by the way, the three-pound brain is getting demented over time, sclerotic, right? Forgetful, you know, right? So the child of God, you and I, God has a plan for us. It's a wonderful plan. It really is. God, our Heavenly Father, loves us so much, he says, I want you to grow up into a mature, godly person like Jesus. I want to make you like Jesus in your character and your conduct. That's your role model. And for you, suffering is part of my curriculum to train you like that. The question for all of us is, are we learning the lessons God wants to teach us through suffering, or are we just whining about it? Because... The whole point of the lessons is to say, Lord, teach me and I'm willing to learn. Here's the point. You're paying the tuition in suffering whether you learn the lessons or not. And by the way, suffering is kind of universal. It's not just reserved for the Christian. The only difference is as a child of God, God has a specific plan for the suffering. He wants to teach you something through it. I've always hated pain to the point where I've said, God, please teach me early I don't want to learn this lesson again because if you don't learn it the first time, he brings the lesson around for another session, right? You get to repeat the class because you're a slow learner, right? So I don't like the pain. So I've said, Lord, teach me. Please teach me. I'm willing to be taught. I want to be like Jesus. And if suffering is part of that process, then that's what I want. But God's mission in all of this is to draw you close to him. When you have suffering and hardships and trials and pain and troubles, and we're going to have them, the point is the solution for all that is him. It's don't run away from God and try and fix it. Run to your heavenly father, like the prodigal son, and don't run away. Okay, let's summarize and then we'll do prayer and praise. Number one. The foundation of our faith is God's word, which guides us and nourishes us. We started with that in Job because understanding suffering 
really comes from understanding God's word. Number two, trials are painful, but praise God, they're temporary, and they're also necessary in order to purify our faith. Number three, various trials give your faith an exhaustive workout. When you endure, you mature. You know, in God's gym, he exercises every spiritual muscle in your life. Yes? Say yes. So if you're only working on your arms, he's got your legs and your abs and, I mean, everything, right? He's got various trials, right? Number four, when God disciplines you, it's proof that you are a beloved child of God. You belong to him. That's why he disciplines you, because he loves you. Number five, God allows us to suffer in order to teach us to rely on him and not ourselves, because relying on ourselves is reliably foolish without input from God. Secondly, or second to the last, our suffering is not always about us. God comforts us so we can comfort others. And you're going to have to take that one by faith, because one of the things I believe you will find, if you have gone through a particular hardship, trial, suffering, etc., God brings people into your life later with that same issue. And your point, you went through that so you can walk through that with them. So you can help them. So you can, when, you have credibility if you've gone through that. Right? If you're a blended family and some young blended family struggling, you have credibility because you've been through a blended family. So your unique experience, God's allowed so you can use that to minister and to encourage his people. And it'll also feed your soul beyond what you can believe. Lastly, sometimes God allows pain to persist because it's better to have pain with God's power than pride without God's power. It's a lot. It's a lot. I wanted today, after much prayer, to to review with you the reasons why God allows suffering. And this is a, a far deeper topic than what we could cover in 45 minutes. But thank you for listening, for paying attention. You are wonderful people. God has a wonderful plan, and, and um, we trust him. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.